Do take a seat. The reading is Acts 17, verses 16 to 34, and can be found on page 1113 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very things you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rosie, thank you very much um, for, for that reading. Um, it's wonderful to see you. Um, 
And uh, although this is my last uh, Sunday, as it were, I thought it'd be really good just to get our heads in the Bible. So we are going to do that. Um, uh, thank you, too, to those of you who uh, came on the park run yesterday. Anybody did the park run yesterday? Yes, I know. Well done. Yes, you thrashed me, I'm afraid. I, 32 minutes and 31 seconds was my appalling score. But it is my best score. It's my only score. Um, so there you are. Um, but it is an exquisite form of torture, actually, and I'm certainly feeling it today. But there you are. So we're in Acts 17, and I wondered which bit of Acts to, to choose. But I thought Acts 17 is the right one. And we could have gone right to the end and looked at Rome. Um, we, we could have looked at the Ephesian elders on the farewell. That would have been too emotional, I think. Or, or we could have looked at the shipwreck, which would have been too catastrophic. So we're in Athens. And in a strange way, this is going to speak to your mind. I know it's a kind of a, for me, it's a fairly emotional sort of day. But actually, uh, let's address the mind, because the mind then will speak to the heart. And that's often how things go. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, open our minds, we pray, that our hearts may love you and delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's the thing. It's a university city, if you like. It's an intellectual center, Athens. Um, and as I put this up, you're on now. Going, yes, I'd like to go there for a holiday. Well, we went to Athens, um, and we went there for our honeymoon, Rachel and I. It was a lovely, lovely place. Um, uh, but what, we, what struck me about Paul in Athens is not so much the intellectual argument, though that's there. The thing that really struck me is that Paul started in the marketplace, which is a place where you shared ideas, but then he went on. He was, he was asked by the leaders of, of Athens to go to the Areopagus. And you think, well, that's another idea-sharing place, but it isn't. It's a court. And 300 years earlier, Socrates was tried in the Areopagus. I can't say it, you know what I mean. And, and he was tried, and actually, he, he was condemned to death. Had to drink hemlock and died. That's how Socrates died. There we are, it's a bit of inf interesting information. Um, but uh, so really what I'm struck by is Paul's courage. And it's, yeah, it's, it's courage in Athens really. Because what he believes is the way he defends himself is not by backtracking or anything like that. He defends himself by talking about the real God in the hopes that that will resonate with these pagan people in Athens because it's their God too. And so as he speaks, and this is what I really want to encourage you to do today is have confidence in the real God and talk about the real God because it will resonate with your friends. Some of them will resonate. So I said, wasn't the way I was expecting this talk to go at all. But anyway, this is the way it's going. So uh, we're going to move quickly through because there are sandwiches and cake through there and they are going fast. So first of all, moved by a needy world. When Paul arrived in Athens, he reacted differently to Rachel and myself. We um, simply saw the sights, all the statues everywhere. But back then, the sights, those sights, those statues, those temples, they were the reality of life in Athens. Apparently there were 10,000 people living in Athens, and apparently there were more statues than there were people. It's crazy, isn't it? And so Paul sees people giving themselves to idols. And when he sees that, do you see the word? He says he is distressed. And if you look at the Greek word, 
um, for that. It sounds like paroxysm, you know. This is what you have when you have a deep angst about something. You, you might have that if you, there's somebody that you care about and you see their lives slipping into some sort of addiction or whatever it might be. Um, you, you kind of have this angst for them. Now you might say, um, we don't have idols today. But we do. <laughs> whatever you give yourself to, whatever you think is the most important thing is, is your idol. Um, I was watching the football yesterday and seeing grown men cry. Um, you know, I mean, obviously their life is City. I mean, it was a great result, by the way. I just have to say that. I am a City fan, so um, uh, there you are. But, uh, but idols, Jonathan Sachs was the chief rabbi, always interesting to read. He made this comment. He says, we all have to live for something. Your friends will be living for something. And, and that thing that they are living for will only disappoint them, whatever it is. Because it can't be everything that they want that thing to be. It can't be. He says this, actually. It's a kind of interesting line. He says, Homo sapiens is a meaning-seeking animal. If there is one thing the great institutions of this modern world do not do, it is to provide meaning. Very interesting quote. Now, the problem that we find ourselves in today in our secularist, se secular uh, modernist kind of world uh, and also a liberal humanist world, what we find is that the, there are competing ideas or ideologies. And we find that they actually are incompatible. Now, I came across this quote in Tim Keller in the book um, Making Sense of God. It was a very good book um, for contemporary people to read. And he wrote this. Um, uh, well, he quoted this. There's a Russian philosopher called Vladimir Solovyov. Yeah, I thought you hadn't heard of him. Neither had I. Okay. Um, but he summarized... The ethical reasoning of secular humanism like this. Man, he said, descended from the apes. Therefore, we must love one another. See, those two phrases don't go together, do they? The second clause does not follow from the first. If it was natural for the strong to eat the weak in the past, why don't people do it now? Um, given the secular view of the universe, the conclusion of love or social justice is no more logical than the conclusion to hate or destroy. These two sets of beliefs in a thoroughgoing scientific materialism and in a liberal humanism simply don't fit with one another. Each set of beliefs is evidence against the other. Many would call this a deeply incoherent view of the world. And our children are growing up with that kind of incoherent view of the world. We... We, we sort of feel we need to love one another, but why? And we believe men and women were descended from the apes, and that's no reason, is it? Interesting line, I think. That's the world in which we are in. Paul, however, did not condemn the Athenians. He, in the marketplace, you see what he said? He reasoned. You see that word there? He reasoned with them. He had a dialogue. He chatted with them. He did word one-to-one -one with them, he, or whatever it might be. But he had a, they, they chatted together. It wasn't a monologue. And if I may say to those of you who are Christians at this particular point, um, 
let the concern for your friends uh, move you outwards. Pray for them. Have that coffee with them. Spend time with them. Listen. Befriend. These are people that have grown up in a kind of incoherent view of the world. They don't have um, a view of the world. Now, over here... Oh, good. I've still got my illustration. Okay, that's just wanted to know if it's still there. Right, let's go to the second point now, because, of course, people were listening to Paul, and, of course, he opened his mouth, and that got him into trouble. So the court said, right, we want to listen to you. Uh, verse 19, and they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? Now, they didn't ask out of curiosity. It wasn't sort of, oh, I'm kind of interested. It is an icy little threat. I think you better explain yourself, Paul. So, second point. Paul does by talking about a God-sized God. And as I go through this, I'm not necessarily saying to you you've got to preach this or share this or whatever. I just want you to get excited about the gospel. I've got two things. To say. The second and the third point of the gospel. Um, and I want you to be moved by that so that you will, in your own way, share it with others. A God, we have a God-sized God. And, uh, and, and the courage he, tell, he, he takes is to say, look, I'm going to tell you who this unknown God really is, trusting that it's going to resonate in your minds. Now, have you ever thought of that? That your friends actually were created by God, right? Even if they don't know Jesus. They were created by God. So as you talk about God, they're kind of going, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it may, that may well happen. To have that confidence and have that courage. So this is what Paul does. He has that confidence um, because he believes in a God-sized God. And can I say that the true God is so different from the pagan God. And this is what Paul brings out. I have said a number of times, but it's an illustration worth repeating that uh, we need all of us to go through a Copernican revolution in our thinking about God. You're going, hmm, what do you mean? Well, up until Copernicus, or, well, there's a debate about it, I know, but let's say it was Copernicus. Just up until that point, everybody thought that the sun went round the earth. And then Copernicus said, think you're wrong. <laughs> I think, actually, the earth revolves around the sun. And we, as it were, for our own health, in terms of understanding God, we need to recognize that the Son of God or, or God himself is at the center and we all revolve around him. And that's such a healthy thing to realize. So here are some of the ways that Paul brings that out. The difference between a real God and a pagan God. And you're going to have a bit of fun with this. So I think uh, you ought to enjoy this. So turning over the page, verse 24. What's the first thing in the court that we learn. Um, and here is, here is the first thing. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Oh my. Paul is standing in the Areopagus and he's saying, The Parthenon over there, <laughs> it's pretty useless. <laughs> it's a building. That's all it is. Because God doesn't need a temple to live in. 
He made the world for you to live in. It's not a lovely truth to know, right? So you don't find God in the church. He made the world for you to live in. What a relief that is. Secondly, verse 24, 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God doesn't need you to keep him going. Ever thought of that? He doesn't need you. And guess what? He doesn't need me either. Okay? So, you know, I might be going, that doesn't make a difference to God. <laughs> He's still here. Hey, he doesn't need any of us to keep him going. Huh? We've got to keep, we've got to raise money, we've got to keep. No, no, not at all. Um, he does not need you to keep the show going. He gives you life and breath to keep you going. Psalm 50. God says in Psalm 50, If I were hungry, would I tell you the cattle on a thousand hills is mine? What a lovely... Is that, can you feel the relief as you're thinking, Thank you, Lord. This is a God-sized God. Thirdly, he's not a local God, okay? Just the God of the Christians. We can be tempted to think that, can't we? But look, as you read on, from one man he made all the nations, all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not very far from any one of us. I'd love to go on and talk about how that gets through to the Epicureans and the Stoics, but we, we just don't have time. And I love that he says in verse 30, in the past God overlooked your ignorance. Oh, now he commands all people to repent. But did you see what he's saying? He's not a local Christian God. He's the God of everyone. Everybody you meet, that's who we're saying God is. Of course that's offensive in some ways, but it is what it is, isn't it? He, that's who he is. He can't be anything less than who he is. He's a, he's a God-sized God. And finally, one of my favorites, verse 29, do you see these little turnarounds? I love the turnarounds. Pagan religion... What pagan religion does is to get hold of a block of wood or a piece of stone and carve it and make God in, in, in their image in some way. That's what, that's what the pagan religion does. But God says, no, no, verse 29, I made you to be in my image. I want to restore you and make you in my image. Wow. Remember somebody once saying to me in a church in Canada, I like to think of God like this. And I said, hold on. <laughs> that won't be a real God. That won't be a real God. Now put all of that together. Creator, sustainer, judge of all, transformer, redeemer. Or, there you are. God doesn't need a temple to live in. He made the world for you to live in. God doesn't need you to keep him going. He gives you life and breath to keep you going. He's not a local God. He's the God of all. Don't make him in your image. He will make you in him. That God, that's a proper God, isn't it? It's a real God. And it's a God in whom you can give your hopes and your fears. Only a God-sized God can look after you. So as you hear this, your own heart should be fluttering a bit as you say, that's my God. He's a God-sized God. 
And he, only he can, can take all the circumstances of my life and bring good out of it. A proper God. That's who you're looking at when you come to Platt every Sunday. God-sized God. Now, can I say you can't control this God? And because of my last sermon, I don't normally ask you to flick through the Bible, but we're going to look at Job 41. And apparently I got the page number wrong, so um, the first person to get to Job 41 can shout out the verse, the, the page, I mean, the page. Five, four, wow, that was quick. Oh, you scroll down to it. No, 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 you didn't, no. You know, you've got a Bible. I'm very impressed. In, 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 this is, we're at the end of Job here, and uh, Job is sort of questioning God, or was questioning God, why did I go through all these troubles? And God says, I'm not going to give you an answer to that. And I'm not going to be beholden to you, Job. But I am your God. I care about you. But listen, you don't control me. And so in this passage, the word Leviathan can be translated crocodile. Let me read it with crocodile in. Can you pull in a crocodile with a fish hook? Can you tie down its tongue or, or with a rope? Can you put a cord through the crocodile's nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak with you gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you and, uh, for you and take it as your slave for life? Yes, you can imagine the crocodile doing that. Can you make a pet of it like a bird and give it to your young daughters in the house? Here you are. Here's your new pet. It's a crocodile. <laughs> you know, can you imagine... Dad, no, don't do that. No, that's not a good idea. Um, will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up amongst merchants? Can you, hide it? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or fill its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on the crocodile, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing the crocodile is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Now, here's the kicker. Ready? Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? God is far bigger than the crocodile. Everything under heaven belongs to me. If you can't control the crocodile, don't think for a moment you can control me. I do what I do. I, I, I will choose what I will choose. But trust me, says God, I have your best interest at heart, your salvation. And that we know from the final point. And we'll come very quickly to that. When Paul finishes his sermon, he comes to this heaven-sent hope. Uh, now Paul starts to talk about the resurrection. In the past, God overlooked, verse 30, such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? He said a day when he's going to judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the starting point of a new way of looking at history. Unbelievable. The Jesus who died for our sins has been raised by God. And the evidence is in the New Testament and in the changed lives of the disciples. 
And, 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 and that's, in a sense, your proof that this God-sized God does exist and he will one day judge the world. But he says, before we get there, I've given you an opportunity. An opportunity that you can turn back to me. Repent simply means turn round. Just turn round and come to me and trust me. And I will forgive you. So there you go. It's not a thing to cry about. It's a thing to rejoice about. The death of Jesus is not just to wow you, but to melt you. And so I'm going to ask for two volunteers. And uh, anybody who's going to be ministry trainee next year can volunteer. Thank you. That's one. Where's the other? Come on, Mr. Moore. Yes, thank you very much. Now, this is, I, I didn't get a chance to be with you guys um, next year, so I can't boss you around. So this is my, I've been looking for, now I don't know if this is going to work this time around, but um, let's just see if it does. So uh, one of you I'd like to get to that end, and one of you I'd like to get to this end. Thank you. Now, by the way, you'll see whether we made a right choice of ministry trainees in the next two minutes. So... Um, <laughs> If you'd like to grab hold of that rope there, and you'd like, there we are, Harry, just grab hold of that one there. Okay, now I want you to pull this tight, as it were, so you don't have to get the end of it, but just, just pull it tight. Just go, go to, the, just get a bit of tension. That's like, not too tight. <laughs> great, just tighten a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. That's great. Okay, so what Paul has presented is the whole gospel, right? God is your creator, sustainer, and, and all, all such things, right? creation. If he's your creator, we're all answerable to him. Okay, if that's true, you are answerable to God. And, and you're thinking, my goodness, I don't, know how I'm, I don't know how that's going to work out. So he's your judge. Now, with creation and judgment, then the cross of Jesus makes a lot of sense, do you see? But Jesus came in the middle of history for a way where you could find forgiveness in him. And, and he, he was raised for your justification. I mean, it makes... Pull it a little bit tighter, lads. Thank you very much. Is this not... Uh, you know, it's, this is not a game, right? You're not trying to see who's stronger than each one. Right. They're needing training, aren't they? They really do need training. Okay. Um, but there you are, you see. Now, if, if, if we knock away creation... You just drop that. The cross doesn't make sense. Or if you pull it up again, if we... And, and everybody's trying to knock away creation, aren't they? You know, or this world is you know, just an accident or whatever. Or you, you take away judgment, afraid to preach about judgment. Again, it, the tension falls, do you see? But if, if we have this, pull it nice and tight, this, this comprehensive view of the world, then the cross and the resurrection of Jesus makes complete sense. Give them a round of applause. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Yeah. No expense spared on the illustrations. Well, 200, 300 years after Paul preached at the Areopagus, the Greek gods were no more. Christianity triumphed. And it triumphed because it had a universal view of the world that made sense to people and gave 
hope to people. And here's the way it gave hope. The Stoics said that, you know, if, if you're facing suffering, just, just try harder, just be strong. And everything is passing away. The Epicureans, well, they didn't even believe that there was another life. So they just ran away from suffering. They tried to avoid it. But when suffering came to the first and second century in the form of two massive plagues, everybody left the cities except the Christians. You can read about this in a book called Larry Hurtado, Why on Earth Did Anybody Become a Christian in the first and second century? Um, The Christians stayed. Why? They weren't afraid to die. They weren't afraid of suffering. They had an answer to suffering. They knew that uh, the Lord Jesus um, suffered and died on the cross. And when he suffered and died on the cross, he didn't detach himself from suffering. He actually attached himself to us. He died in our place. And, and they knew that with the resurrection, it wasn't that you would never see your family and friends again. They knew that with Christianity... We would get our bodies back and we would see one another again. It is a phenomenal hope, the Christian message. Phenomenal hope. Heaven, and I quote here a little line from Tim Keller, but it's a good one. Heaven is not a consolation for all the difficulty you've been through, heaven is about a resurrection that gives you. The life you never had. That's what you're being promised. It's massive. And it is brilliant. And that's what a God-sized God and a heaven-sent hope gives you. Now, what was the response to all of this as we come to an end? Well, the response you can see uh, at the bottom of 32 is mixed. Some sneered. Others said, we're interested, and and a third lot became followers of Jesus. And some people have said, well, that wasn't wasn't a great result from an evangelistic campaign. That wasn't the point. I think the point is this. Paul stood in front of the biggest court in the Greek world, and he spoke about the true God. And do you see what it says in verse 33? Paul left the council. He got out alive. Some, enough people said, that's interesting. That's something better than we've heard before. Let, we want to hear you again. Okay, there's always going to be the sneerers. That's why we need to take courage in the Christian message. Do you see, when you talk about it, it begins to resonate with people. Uh, and, 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 and that's what's so brilliant about it. It makes sense to people. So take courage, my friends. Don't be quiet. Get alongside your friends. Dialogue. But don't keep your message quiet. Because actually there's no other hope. It's not that it's the best hope. There's no other hope because there's no other God-sized God and there's no other heaven-sent hope. Can I tell you what this means to me as I close? A little personal thing for me. 
Um, I, I love Psalm 90. Um, Psalm 90 is a... I wrote a song about it, and um, I, I preached on it at my father-in-law's funeral. Um, and uh, the whole of it I love, you know. Uh, you know, it tells us to get a heart of wisdom, you know, think about the length of time that we've got left in this world. You know, hurry up and get yourself sorted with God. Live for God. And actually, if you live for God, you can get lots of, you know, your, your work is eternal. But it's the opening lines that I, that I was struck by. Look at verse 2, first of all. What kind of God do we believe in? We believe in a God-sized God. I love the mountains, Keswick, the Lake District, the Welsh Hills. Our house overlooks the Welsh Hills. Lovely. But before you brought forth the mountains, and you feel as if they've been there forever, or the earth, or the world, actually, what one thing lasts forever? Or what one person lasts? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Actually, in the Bible, it also says the word of the Lord stands forever, doesn't it? Everything he speaks also stands forever. And if you're a Christian, by the way, the word lives in you. So, wow, you're going to live forever too. But isn't that not a great thought? He is the only everlasting thing, the only thing that's going to last. Now then, read the first verse. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. And what's a dwelling place? Well, where were you last night? Sorry, that's a dodgy question, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I just realized that. No, I don't mean it like that. Sorry. Um, but it's... You were at home, weren't you? Oh, well, probably. Dwelling place is home. Now read it. Lord, you have been our home in every generation. Do you see what this, this means to you and me? It means... That my mum and dad, who are Christians, I, I, or, or my father-in-law and mother-in-law, who I love very much, or they've, they've passed away. But I will see them again because they're in the eternal home. My grandfather and grandmother. My grandfather led the choir in, in, in the local church in, in, uh, in South Wales. I will see them again. I will see Christians again all the way through the centuries. In fact, I'll see anybody who's put their trust in the living God, even in the Old Testament, who, as it were, looked forward to Christ. Do you know what that also means? I'll see you again, and you'll see me again. It's nice, that, isn't it? And that's not just the sort of silly thing that you hear in a funeral service where there's no hope, you know, looking down from us from the sky. No, this is real. This is the only real God. And he says, or, or rather the psalmist says, you've been our dwelling place in every generation. And so we will indeed meet again. Take courage in Manchester to be who you are, a Christian who believes in a God-sized God and a heaven-sent hope. And one day we'll all arrive at home See you there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you 
Thank you for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that you are a great God. And Lord, we thank you particularly that you're a great help in suffering. Some of us have been through very difficult times and patches. And we wonder whether it can ever be redeemed, sorted out. And it will be. And only a God-sized God can do that. Thank you, Lord, you're our heaven-sent hope too. Lord, you rose from the dead not just to wow us, but to melt us. You died and rose again for us. You came into this world for us, not to judge us, but to take the judgment. What a gracious and wonderful God you are. And so, Lord, as we commit ourselves to you, wherever you will lead us and in whatever circumstances you will take us. May all of us in this room today take courage, live for the living God, delight in the Lord Jesus, and in lots of different ways show his love to a needy world. This we pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen.